good. Okay, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Like I said, I'm going to read through verse 30 this morning. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We started rolling downhill in John's Gospel now. Uh, We've spent a lot of time here since September of 2020 until this point in John chapter 10, but we're sort of breaking off larger chunks of Scripture and seeing Jesus and all of what's happening with him and his engagement with his opponents, the religious leadership, and we see Jesus, uh, things escalating, and we know where this is all headed, um, but uh, right now things are getting, getting wild. In verse 31, if you read on out of our, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at this in a few weeks, but the Jews then pick up stones again, once again, to stone Jesus. And so the things that he's saying are, um, are bringing about or evoking a response in in the religious leadership, in the Jews, uh, that makes them want to murder Jesus. Jesus reveals more and more about who he is throughout this text, throughout our, our time, sort of in these middle chapters of John's gospel. He's, he's revealing more about who he is and what he came to do. But before we jump into this text this morning, I want to get to 30,000 feet, sort of, we're in an airplane. Let's look at the landscape of John's gospel for a moment. It's good to kind of get up and look at what, where we've been and what John is actually doing here as he's writing, uh, writing this gospel. What are his goals and what does he want us to take away on a large scale? So if we get to 30,000 feet, like we're up in an airplane looking down at the landscape of this book down below, there's a couple things that I want to remind you of this morning before we look at these, these verses. The first is this. John, just simply John's goal in writing this book. Why did John write this gospel? Why did he write this gospel? And if you remember all the way back to where we started, probably not, September of 2020 is a long time ago, but when, where we started in this book, we looked at the goal of why John wrote, why did John write this gospel? And there was a clear, a clear uh, statement, but it's at the end. It's at the end of his gospel, and that's in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And John just writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the contents of John's gospel are designed for us, they're designed to grow our faith. It's designed to establish belief in God's 
people. This book, we could say this about all of Scripture, really, but it's explicitly stated here. Uh, the, the, this book is wielded by the Holy Spirit um, to grow and deepen our faith. That's what John, he sat down to write this. So if you remember, historically, John was a pretty old guy. John was young when he walked with Jesus, probably a young, like 18 years old or somewhere in that range. But he was an old man when he sat down to write this gospel. And so he had the, the weight of a, a life lived in light of understanding what it was meant to walk with Jesus behind him so that when he sat down to write this gospel, that pours out onto the page. It pours out onto the page all of this experience that he had with Jesus and then all of the reflection he was able to do in a life in his life when he walked with Jesus here on earth. And so the words he spoke and the signs that he performed, Jesus that is, the words that he spoke, the, the signs that Jesus performed, John the apostle, the author, was present for and recorded here. And in 1 John, a letter that the John the apostle wrote, he says something very uh, something helpful to us in our understanding. He says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, the we here being the apostles, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the father and was made manifest to us, which was with the father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So again, the we, the disciples, walked with Jesus. And like he says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, uh, these men witnessed the signs that Jesus did. They were present for the words that he, that he spoke. and that. It is the duty then of these witnesses to pass along what they saw. It's a witness or the duty of these men to, Jesus commissions them to do it as he ascends into heaven, to go and make disciples of all nations. And so the word of God waters our faith. Here, John's gospel, as we spent so much time here, John's gospel designed to water our faith that we might grow, that our root system might develop and deepen in good soil. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans 10, 17. He says, so faith, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the word supernaturally gives us ears to hear, or as we've seen in John's gospel in chapter nine, eyes to see. And when we're given the ability to perceive the word of Christ, we are given faith. So as we explore John's gospel, his goal should always be on our mind. Keep this in your mind every week as we come and look at John's gospel. We want to learn who Jesus is. We want to learn what Jesus did. And then we see our faith grow and flourish and bear fruit. There's the first thing, 30,000 feet. Remember the goal, why John writes his gospel, why the Holy Spirit prompted John to record these things at the end of his life after walking with Jesus earlier in his life. Second thing from 30,000 feet. Um, track with me, I'm going to say this. Um, oftentimes, the application, the application, how this, this, this stuff works itself out in our lives is doctrinal and not dutiful. Now, 
Um, I said that because there's two D's there, and maybe that's a weird way to say that. But here's what I mean. We need to know what's true about Jesus. You and I, friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, we need to know what is true about Jesus. We need to know what he did. And John's gospel is really heavy on all of that information. Um, And what that means is that clear truth about Jesus is constantly being communicated to us from John chapter 1 all the way through the end. The truth and how it applies to our immediate life is not, though, simply handed to us. It's not simply handed to us in the form of a lot of go-and-do commands. Rather, it's information given to us about the person of Jesus and what he came to do. Churches for the last 30, 40, 50 years have really leaned into the conversation about what's relevant. And what we affect, now relevancy is not a bad thing. It's not a dirty word. But the reality is that when you begin to focus exclusively on application, it focus exclusively on what we would deem as relevant. Oftentimes what we do is wind up short-circuiting our understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. And then what we wind up doing is, is making compromises in what we believe to be true and what the scriptures actually say about God and what the scriptures actually claim about Jesus Christ and what Jesus himself in his words here in John's gospel actually claim to be true about himself. We are a people and live in a world where um, we are overwhelmed with information. I don't know if you felt overwhelmed with information recently. Um, I know that I certainly have. It comes, it comes bearing down on you and you think to yourself, I just need a, a break, like a mental vacation um, to get out of this headspace where information is just being leveled on us all of the time. And in a world where we're being overwhelmed with information, um, and so, we, what we kind of do is set up this filter. And if we don't see how something is immediately af- uh, applicable, or if we don't see how something matters in our lives, then we question if it matters for our lives. If we don't immediately see how something matters for our lives, then sometimes we question if it matters for our lives. We're much more quick to discard something if we don't see how it matters. And we say, well, it doesn't really matter. It, it probably, pro- probably just move on. It'll be fine. Part of faith, though, in understanding John's gospel in particular, is trusting that God is fulfilling his purposes in us, even when it isn't clear to us how. Let me say that again. Part of faith is trusting that God is fulfilling his purposes in us, even when it isn't clear how. So in an information age, that when we ask this, the thing about the information coming to us, we say, how is this relevant? I don't see how, therefore it's not relevant. We need to discard that thinking. God's purposes are fulfilled in us through his word. So personal and corporate time in his word is never wasted. It never doesn't matter. Anytime you sit here and the word is preached, anytime um, the word is read, anytime the word is sung, anytime you go home and sit in your chair and read the Bible, it is never time that is wasted. It can never be. It is, that's impossible. It's impossible to spend time in God's word and for that time to be wasted. God's word is always relevant, not just when we see how it directly applies to our immediate situation. 
We never have to ask if it matters, even if it isn't immediately available to us how it matters. And so I said the application of John's gospel is often doctrinal. Now, there's another word that you think to yourself, well, what is that? What is doctrine? That sounds like a dirty word. It sounds for some like ivory tower theologian sort of thing. Um, I don't want to engage with that word, but doctrine is just the system and structure of our belief. We work in systems and structures all of the time. Doctrine is the systems and structures of our belief. If we say Jesus is God, that's a doctrinal statement. If we say God is three persons, one divine nature, that's a doctrinal statement. If you say the Bible is without error, that is a doctrinal statement. Those are fundamental tenets. Those are fundamental beliefs. Those are fundamental statements of the Christian faith. To not deny those three statements, which are true, that I just made, to deny any of those is heresy. It's heresy. Heresy is the denial of biblically defined doctrine. Heretics take the the systems. Heretics take the structures of of, uh, of Christian belief and twist them so that they are no longer biblically defined. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I know you're champing at the bit to talk about heretics this morning, which is going to be great. We're going to talk about two heretics. Tons of fun. So application in John's gospel is often doctrinal, but it's not always dutiful. What I mean by dutiful, that's not always a word we use. I mean, things don't just, aren't just laid out for us to do. Um, Sometimes in scripture, we actually get those statements where it's just like, go and do this. In other instances, we get, we get things like in John's gospel, where there is an application um, immediately handed to us, but we kind of have to mine for it. We have to dig for it a little bit here in, in, in the gospel. What does it mean that we need to work for it? The doctrine that John's gospel states so clearly, we're supposed to internalize it. We're meant to soak it in. We're meant to believe it. And as our faith is grown through it, through the gospel, we become more in tune with how God designed for us to live. Remember, it's God's word that renews our mind. Your mind that is always being assaulted with information in the world we live in, it's God's word that renews our minds. Paul says it like this, Romans 12, 2. You're familiar with this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So life transformation comes through a a renewed mind. So we're given, in John's gospel, doctrinal understanding, which gives us a proper outlook on reality. And then how we should live is worked out. You can't shortcut this. You can't shortcut it. God did not set it up in a way that we could just snip some stuff out and and walk away. You can't come to church on Sunday or sit down with your Bible reading plan and ask, what should I do? That's the wrong question to ask out of the gate. You have to approach God's word with the question first, what do I need to believe? What must I believe? The first question is lazy. It's impatient, and it leads to misapplication. The second question leads to a life where faith is grown and flourishes in fruitfulness. What's the difference? Do you see the difference here? You approach your Bible. What must I believe? I want to 
put these two things in front of you this morning. John's goal. These are written, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. And then the nature of application in John's gospel. Here's why. The text here that we're looking at contains some really fundamental doctrinal statements that Jesus is going to make. And when we get to the end of the time, there's some, there's some immediate application that we can have, but the application out of these statements that Jesus makes need to be internalized dramatically. You need to soak in these truths. They should stir us to ask questions that lead to life transformation and then lead to faith that flourishes in fruitfulness. So here's what we're going to do in the time that remains this morning. We're going to, we're going to explore two heretics. We're going to learn about a couple of heretics, um, which is exciting because these two men in the early church, they're two guys who answered the question, what must I believe? And they answered it wrongly. And Jesus, in this text, clears up the two things that come out of, here, uh, out of this passage in one fell swoop. These two heresies that these men committed, one fell swoop. Jesus is going to clear them up right here in this passage. These two guys could have been saved from their heresy if they just read this short passage. And both of these men lived after this, these were recorded. If they applied God, God's wisdom instead of being wise in their own eyes. So you may or may not have heard of these, these two men. One's name is Sibelius and one's is Arius. Augustine, the 4th century bishop of Hippo, said that this passage deals quickly and concisely with each of these errors these men committed. So, let's talk about heresy. Exciting. You guys seem like you're excited. I'm excited. So first, first thing here. I want, to see, I want you to see how Jesus' words tie to what these men say. And then I want you also to see, as we walk through these things, where these things exist in our world too. They didn't go away. They're still here. So first, Sibelius. Little is known about this guy personally. I think that he kind of got scrubbed because he, was, uh, because he was a heretic. But we do know that he lived in, in Rome in the early 3rd century. And he's probably a presbyter um, in the Church of Rome. That's kind of all we know. Outside of that, he was a heretic. And so, Sibelianism became the name of the heresy that Sibelius concocted. And at the heart of the heresy, at the heart, very heart of this heresy, is that God is not three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but God is just one person. You say, well, that sounds like semantics to me. It's very important. And it's, it's really, really important. At the heart of the heresy that God is, God is not three persons, but one person. That the Son and the Holy Spirit are just expressions of the Father. Sibelius claimed that the Son is not a unique person, that Jesus is not a unique person, and that the Holy Spirit is not a unique person. And that the Son and the Spirit do not have unique roles within the Godhead. So, Here's a very practical example. When Sibelius would administer baptism, he would baptize only in the name of God the Father. So if you've been present for a baptism here at Buffalo City Church or really anywhere, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're following Jesus' lead from Matthew 28, 19, 
in the Great Commission when Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So Sibelius says, God is not three persons, he's one person. And, um, and that the Son and the Spirit are just sort of these expressions of God the Father. Now, so this text this morning, what Jesus says here, is in opposition to what Sibelius taught. How? How is, he, how is it in opposition? It's, it's this. Jesus affirms that he, the Son, and the Father are two distinct persons. That he, the Son, and the Father are two distinct persons. This is seen in the fact that Jesus talks about his Father and himself separately. It's very simple. Verse 25, he says, Jesus answered them, I told you that you do not, uh, that, uh, that you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name you see, he's referring to the Father as a different person. He's not just referring to himself here. And then in verse 29, he says it again. My Father who has given them to me, talking about the sheep. And then verse, and again in verse 29 at the end. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then in verse 30, I and the Father are one. If Sibelius is correct, none of these statements by Jesus would make any kind of sense at all. We would find it strange. You would find it strange if you met someone on the street and, and they, they started talking about themselves as if they were two people. You'd find that strange, right? I think, yeah. And, and we would assume that the person has some multiple personality disorder or that person has some, there's something going on here. The Jews in verse 20 assume that Jesus, there's something going on in Jesus because they call him insane or demon-possessed. They assume Jesus' claims about multiple people in unity are, can't, can't be the case. So this is the first heresy that we run into that the early church expressed where Jesus clears it up here. God the Father and God the Son are two unique, distinct persons and also the Holy Spirit. It's God the Father one divine nature, three distinct persons. The second, the second heresy, though, that is cleared up here is Arianism. And so Arius, this is a much, maybe you've heard this name. This is a far, he was probably the most popular of all heretics. Um, we know a lot more about Arius than we do Sibelius. He, he caused quite the stir. He, he lived in the third century and then into the fourth. He was sort of a contemporary with Sibelius. And after being the church's most famous heretic, he's likely best known for getting punched in the face by Santa Claus. Um, not, not, but the man who Santa Claus is, is, is crafted after, St. Nicholas, hit him because, uh, because of his heresy. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't sit there anymore. And I'm not saying that we should punch heretics, but we should definitely refute them. Um, St. Nicholas lost his cool when Arius spouted heresy at the Council of Nicaea. And so, Arianism is Arius's heresy. And it can be boiled down, it can be boiled down to this. Jesus is not equal with God. Jesus is not equal to God the Father. Arius believed that Jesus was a created being, not God, sharing in some divine attributes what was inferior 
to God. Arius would say that Jesus had a similar nature to God, but they do not share the same nature. Biblically speaking, however, Jesus and the Father have the same nature. Technically speaking, we would say they have the same substance. Arianism has popped up in many ways throughout the centuries. It has plagued the church throughout her whole history. Now, you know men and women who are Arians, who, who, who subscribe to Arianism, that don't even know they subscribe to Arianism. Anyone who claims that Jesus is sort of had this special relationship with God, but is a created being. Anyone who says that is committing that, that heresy. You, you know that you've, when you've shared the gospel with friends and neighbors and coworkers, you've said, you know, I, I think Jesus was a special guy and I think that he was a really important person, but um, he's not God. Or if he, if he, he might have a special connection to God, but he's not, he's not, he's not God. You've run into that, no doubt, if you shared the gospel with, with others. It's a popular thing to even say. Put level, put, put, God, but put Jesus on the same playing field as um, other popular teachers like Muhammad or Gandhi. So how did Jesus' words in this text oppose Arianism? Two things, two things. First, Jesus speaks himself as equally capable and as authoritative as the Father. Jesus speaks of himself as equally capable and authoritative as the Father. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life. Jesus has the authority to give eternal life. And they will never perish. Jesus has the capability of giving eternal life. And they will never, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus has the authority and the capability of securing you, if you're in him, for all of eternity. That does not sound like a created being. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so he says that in verse 28 no one will snatch them out of my hand and then he equates himself with the father by making the exact same statement in verse 29 my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand now notice how he says um my father is greater than all but then he puts himself right on the same playing field jesus says that the father is greater than all but the very same promise of his sheep's unsnatchability is fulfilled by Jesus and the Father. The Father is greater than all, and Jesus, in verse 30, is one with the Father. Jesus is equal to the Father and is greater than all. So that's the first thing. Jesus speaks, himself as, speaks of himself as equally capable and authoritative as the Father. The second thing is Jesus declares himself to be one with the Father in verse 30. Look at it. He just says it. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. No creature can claim to be equal with the Creator. No creature can claim to be equal with the Creator. Creatures are, often infer are always inferior to the Creator. For any created being to claim to be equal to the Creator is insane 
the accusation in verse 20, or demon-possessed, the accusation in verse 20. There is no... No one should be able to read verse 30 and think, Jesus is inferior to God, and Jesus stands at the center of my belief system. Ridiculous! What? You, you, that's insanity! You can't believe that Jesus is inferior to God the Father and then put him at the central of your belief system because of what he says here. To make that statement make someone like Arius, that, that, that statement makes him an idiot! <laughs> because you just made the central figure of your belief system a liar. This is good stuff. <laughs> Jesus cannot say, I and the Father are one, and be inferior to the Father, and be worthy of anyone following. Anyone following him. Guys, come on. We can't, we can't come into this space and claim to worship Jesus Christ. Why, why would we dedicate any time or energy or effort to this man? Why would we call ourselves little Christians? If Jesus is not inferior to the Father, then we stand here this morning saying we're ready and willing to follow a bunch of liars. A bunch of cheats. But Jesus is one with the Father. I and the Father are one, he says. If Jesus says, I and the Father are one, while being inferior to the Father, then Jesus isn't just unworthy of being followed. It makes him a terrible deceiver. Worse than any tyrant who has walked the face of the earth. Worse than dictators. And he makes dictators and tyrants and murderers and liars look like cute, cuddly kittens on a calendar in your garage. Jesus is equal to the Father, eternal and authoritative. And he then looks at you and says, You're mine! You belong to me and I have the authority and the capability of securing you for all of eternity. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. The central figure of our belief system made audacious claims. And it is ludicrous. It is ludicrous to say he's anything but what he claims to be and continue to follow him. Arius got it wrong. Jesus clears it up with six simple words less in the original language in verse 30. I and the Father are one. So what you say? Okay, great. Here are a few thoughts to wrap this up this morning. The first thing I want to say to you is to go back up to the beginning of our time together and to think of the reality, of the gravity of what we say we believe about Jesus. It is, we have to plead with men and women who say, I think Jesus is a pretty good dude, but, but, but you know, I think he's created. He may have sinned. He, he isn't equal with the Father. He's inferior. He's better than we are, but... We need to contend for the central figure of our faith. We need to approach it with courage. Be bold. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, in his own words, is one with the Father. Consider this morning that understanding. Now, you probably don't get as excited at talking about Sibelius and Arius as I do, and that's fine. I'm, I, I love you all. But, but here, understanding where the church has been and some of the errors that men and women have committed throughout the last 2,000 years are, is extremely helpful for us because understanding historical errors and heresies can help us right now in the 21st century steer clear of them as a body. This is God's grace given to us that we can look back at those things and say, look at this. We, the Bible says this. We can't believe that God is only one person. We believe that he is three distinct persons and has one divine nature. We can't say Jesus is inferior to God the Father. That is not at all what Jesus says here in our text. So it helps us steer clear of these errors in the future. We say it often, but the truth in our world is relativized. In our world especially, we say like, well, you believe what you want and I'll believe what I do and it'll be fine. People are told to speak their personal truth. Point of view is regarded more highly than facts or actual events. Truth can be manipulated into what we want it to because we live in a world where truth is under assault. Heresies like the ones we looked at this morning may not be challenged, but friends, as the church, we're called to stand up boldly and courageously for the truth that Jesus communicates about who he is. We might not be conditioned, or we might be conditioned to keep our mouths shut when someone denies that God is one person instead of three persons. We might be tempted to think that it's no big deal for someone to claim that Jesus is a created being. But to leave those things unchecked is to allow for them to creep in and undermine the truth that God gives us in his word. We have to stay vigilant. These, this is where compromise begins. These are absolute essential doctrines, truths, because the Bible is outspoken. The Bible is, makes no ifs, ands, or buts about who Jesus is about the nature of God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So, understanding these historical errors and heresies can help us steer clear of them in the future. The second thing I want you to think about is, we need clear statements about what we believe doctrinally. We need clear statements about what we believe doctrinally. In the early church, these came in the form of, like, creeds. You've seen these. Um, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed. And in the last four to five hundred years, many helpful confessions have popped up. The Westminster Confession of Faith from 1646 or the Second London Baptist Confession from 1689 or one that I like more from 1833. I don't like it more. It's just more concise and it's helpful. 1833, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. These things, these creeds, these confessions, synthesize biblical doctrine, help us internalize it all while pointing us back to faith, to faith-building scripture. The thinking has come under attack in modern times, like, well, conf- creeds and confessions, that's what the Catholics do. 
We don't do that. We're Protestants. But many people see creeds and confessions of enemies also of spiritual life. They think they become rote recitation points on a Sunday morning um, where we don't know that we're not really supposed to believe what we're saying. But, or that they represent this bygone era of religion, of stodgy, weird hat-wearing, emotionless old men. But it's actually the opposite that's true. The men who wrote these creeds and confessions had faith that was flourishing in fruitfulness. They had vibrant faith. Faith that was fed by the word of God. Faith that flourished. And I believe that these clear statements about what we believe doctrinally can have the same effect for us. Pointing us to biblical truth that waters our faith so that it might grow from sapling to mighty oak. That's what we're after. That's what John was after when he wrote this book. That we would look at it and we would have clear belief structure. That we might read all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did and build our lives upon it. Not separate from it, but upon it. Not like the one who builds his house on sand that when the waves and the storm come, it get washed away quickly. But like the one who built his house on a rock. That's what John's gospel is about. Building our lives, understanding what Jesus has said about who he is and what he came to do so that we might build our house on the rock so that we might be the tree planted by streams of living water. So as we close this morning, I just want to read a portion of the Athanasian Creed. And I'm going to just listen. Just listen to the words. They declare the truth about the God we worship. A God who is three and one. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Catholic here, not Roman Catholic. means universal. You see a little c. Universal faith. Which faith, unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship the one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son. And such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated. The Son uncreated. And the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father is unlimited. The Son is unlimited. And the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. And the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals but one eternal. And also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet there are three almighty, there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, 
The Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say, there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved, let him thus think of the Trinity. Let's pray. God, this morning we long for right belief to mark us as a church. God, would you give us a clear understanding of who you are. Now, in a mystery of the Trinity, but also in depth of clarity about who you have said you are. God, we praise you that Jesus Christ is eternal. God, we praise you that you secure us in yourself. God, we praise you that we as your people can know you through your word. That there is not one thing in all of creation that has slipped out of your sight. So this morning, God, would we grow in our depth of understanding, but also in our depth of love for you. God, that you are this, a God who is infinite and eternal and yet you have made yourself available and imminent in our world. And we thank you for all of these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.